Hello and welcome back to the Energy Flux podcast. I'm your host, Seb Kennedy, founding editor of the Energy Flux newsletter, which you can subscribe to over at www.energyflux.news. Uh, it's my great pleasure this week to be joined by Samuel Merlin. He's a partner and head of energy at Hanneman Partners, which is a London-based global independent investment bank. Samuel previously served in the US Department of Defense before pivoting into investment banking, energy M&A, and capital raising. Samuel, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Seb. Pleasure to be on. All right. Now, there's, uh, we were just discussing off, off air a moment ago, just the uh, almost incomprehensible amount of energy news that's, that's hitting the wires uh, daily at the moment. Um, and uh, we've, we've got a kind of fairly broad topic, which is energy geopolitics in the time of war, obviously with uh, several rounds of uh, Western sanctions being uh, waged against, uh, against Russia and uh, this kind of really roiling energy geopolitics across the world, really. Um, Samuel, we're, we're going to talk about the, the, the state of the, the conflict broadly at the moment, and then we'll kind of drill down some of the, 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 the geopolitical questions. Um, but the way I see it, there are, there are kind of three basic scenarios for how this conflict could or, 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 or will play out. Um, we've got one being a, a swift resolution via negotiated peace settlement, which is looking kind of unlikely at the moment. Uh, a, a scenario two, which would be kind of war drags on, but we manage to somehow avoid direct military conflict between Russia and NATO. And we seem to be stuck in number two at the moment. And then there's scenario three where there's an escalation, Russia and NATO come into direct military conflict and the war gets out of hand. And you could say all bets are off when, when something like that happens. But um, how, how do you see this, the, the situation, this very fluid situation right now? Give us a snapshot and do you, do you concur we're kind of stuck in two and what, might, what would it take to kind of push us into like a more peaceful scenario one or a escalatory scenario three? Look, it's a really good question, Seb. Um, I think, look, I, I broadly agree with, with you know, with the range of outcomes, and I think for better or for worse, we are we are stuck in kind of that bucket number two. Um, you know, I think the if we if we kind of keep things overly simplified at a high level, I think the you know the the kind of the challenge, like the challenge here, it's almost kind of equating it to you know, kind of equating it to a child. You, you know, on one hand, you've got a, you don't have the political will for anyone to get involved. And I think this starts to kind of flow through to the energy side of things um, you know, that will probably hit on as well. But, you know, Russia knows its counterpart wants to do everything to it, you know, to avoid getting engaged. How far can Russia push without, you know, crossing that threshold and the barrier of, of this escalating into something bigger that requires or you know, it requires NATO or other international players to start getting involved in, in a more direct way than an indirect way, um, and that's that's kind of the chess game that's that's at play right now. Um, you know, I think the I think the fear is you know is ultimately what at what point does the current you know stuck in bucket two waiting for Russia to either tire itself out do enough damage to try to chalk together what could optically be a win for Russia, even if it's an overall loss um, and what, what it takes to get there, whether it's, you know, intentional or, or an accident, 
in terms of what future activities does does Russia take, whether that means threatening threatening energy supplies, which are its biggest chip on the chessboard, but also the biggest P&L driver of the country, um, you know, or does does it start going down the more advanced military route where there have been rumors of testing of possible chemical weapons in Ukraine, whether this is now turning into, you know, you know, taking taking hostages, bringing them back to Russia. You know, is there something else that forces a hand to be proactive? But I think that's going to have to be. We you know we we've we've seen it in Syria, we've seen it in elsewhere. I think the political will is very low, so the bar is incredibly high for what Russia needs to do to really change its current course of action. That would either move it to a faster political settlement, whatever that means, or escalating into a more into a more confrontational or or call it a kind of proactive um, approach from, from either the Russian side or, or the West at large. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And um, you you preempted my, my opening question about energy sanctions. Um, And obviously we've seen EU leaders uh, log ahead today over whether to sanction Russian energy exports. Um, Let's just think about the, 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 the detail of that. So, um, uh, you know, uh, obviously, like Russia is a big supplier of oil, gas, coal, and of course, nuclear fuel to uh, the EU and the world. Um, if, if push comes to shove and we, we get to the point where there is uh, some sort of sanctioning on Russian energy exports, but uh, specifically to the EU, um, how might that look? Would it be like a blanket ban, do you think? Or would there be, um, you know, would we see one fuel source targeted ahead of another? And would we see carve-outs geographically, maybe for parts of, of Europe which are more reliant, so they can, you know, maybe Germany or Eastern Europe can, can keep buying gas, but maybe like Western country, Western parts of the EU would would kind of have a kind of unified Western front against sanctions. How how, how do you see that that looking? It's a good question. Um, you know, I, I see it right now as you you almost have a de facto ban on on oil and gas products right now because you cut them off from the financial institutions. So right now, global commodities traders can't buy Russian product. You've you have sanctioned or have sanctioned subsidiaries of a lot of the entities that are producing the oil and gas in Russia. So you've gone after some of the NOCs directly, their principles, or particularly from the US perspective, where sanctions are always a very gray area. You've set that you cast that net really wide. So either you're sort of in the gray area where by default a lot of companies just won't touch it. Or two, even if they are comfortable with the risk environment, can they even pay for it? Because you've cut you've cut them off in their major the other major Russian banks from SWIFT. So simple electronic payments isn't possible or is you know or is very problematic. Um, so you know you've already cut off a lot of the wider buying universe, which is why right now, you know, we're shell I think made a bonehead decision on buying a single cargo of Russian crude. But if you kind of read through and see where some of the Urals and Russian crude benchmarks are trading, they're trading about 30 plus dollar discount to global oil benchmarks. And that's pricing in that risk of there is less demand. There are less buyers of that product. So by default, it has to trade at a significant discount. So on one hand, I would say some of the sanctions already in place are already having that impact. Um, you know, the US and the UK putting in oil embargo, you know, it's broadly it's broadly symbolic. I mean, from a US perspective, that's taking 
I think it's around 5% of total oil imports and refined product imports by removing Russia from the equation. That's not insurmountable. You can you can source that on the open market from a variety of places. So it's it's more a symbolic effort more than having a massive impact on the US on the US market or even from a Russian perspective on on where the end market for Russian oil and and refined products is. Similar similar but a slightly higher degree from a UK perspective. Um, I think the bigger question you know is is what about what about the gas? Um, and what about the EU from a gas perspective? Um, and that's that's a touchy subject. Um, you're talking about, you know, for call it, you know, the Eastern Bloc is the wrong term, but effectively Central Central and Eastern European countries, kind of Italy, Germany, East, you're talking about 40 to 50 percent in some countries more of Russian gas powering the energy system in the country. Those are numbers you can't you can't fix and plug overnight. The U.S. can plug a five percent gap in its, you know, kind of daily petroleum product supply, but forty percent on a system that's built to power itself off of gas isn't going to happen. Isn't going to happen overnight, and that's why you've really seen those who are pushing it in the EU are those who aren't as dependent on that um, on that end of the value chain. But you know, Ireland can kind of can kind of say that. Um, there's a reason Italy is not saying that. And there's a reason Germany is going on the extreme other end of the spectrum um, because there is no alternative. And because, you know, from that earlier point of there's not the political will for this for this to escalate. I don't think Germany is in a position where they're willing to make the sacrifice of not having consistent and stable supply of, of energy and electricity in their country for, you know, for the Ukraine issue. Um, they have they've had bigger they've had bigger political fights at home. They already shut off their nuclear power plants, which you know we could have another podcast on and what you know the pros and cons of that move. But you've further you've further you know increased your reliance on Russian gas from a German perspective. You have no other viable near term or immediate term alternative to that from you know from electricity and a heat perspective. So what do you do? You send your foreign minister to the UAE to ask. OPEC to pump more oil, that's, you know, that has some, some upside, but we know the cap and excess capacity from, you know, from an OPEC perspective is limited. Um, you know, the second they're trying to negotiate long-term supply contracts with Qatar for LNG. Um, that's, you know, that's, that can be helpful. That can be significant, you know, separate discussion on, you know, is, is, you know, an energy system underpinned by Qatar, good, better, or worse than an energy system, you know, underpinned by Russia. Um, but I think coming back to the crux of it, there is significant reliance, or sorry, significant apprehension to sanction either Russian oil or Russian gas from the EU context for exactly that reason. Russia has said, if you sanction our oil um, or embargo our oil and our gas, we're shutting off the taps. They've done it historically with Ukraine almost kind of every three, four years when their gas supply contracts expire and they try to renegotiate and they use gas as a political weapon and a tool. They've shown they've been able, they've been comfortable doing that in the past. I think people think the threat's real um, and no one's, no one has the appetite to fight that yet. Um, and that's, that's a big, that's a big challenge and problem if you want to try to get a, a resolution here um, that doesn't have, that doesn't have a great 
you know, a great or kind of clear end story yet. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, and, and I think that's why we're seeing those those headlines coming out about this this massive division among member states. But within that, there's interesting wrinkles. So you're seeing kind of at either ends of the spectrum, like you said, those who are less dependent on gas, obviously being more um, amenable to the idea of a, a ban on, on Russian gas exports. But at the same time, you've seen some eastern states like Poland and Lithuania coming out quite strongly in favour of an embargo on Russian gas. And that's because they've really tried to diversify their gas sources um, because they have this kind of difficult historical relationship with their um, their big neighbour. And, um, of course, they've you know, Poland has run a pipeline from, I think, Norwegian gas fields in the North Sea, and, um, and they've also got the you know, LNG imports, and, and they've... Uh, yeah, they've been kind of developing their gas infrastructure to get those imports into the interior of the country. Um, so, so yeah, there, there, there are kind of differences even across the geographies. And I thought you made a really good point there about is like, an energy system based on Qatari energy any better kind of morally than a Russian one? And we all know, I think, about the human rights abuses going on in, in, in Qatar, uh, which are quite well documented now. Um, uh, I, I wanted to ask you, though, like if, if scenario... Uh, one was to somehow prevail, you know, imagine that we, we, we arrive at this peaceful settlement, then, you know, how, how quickly do you think sanctions might be rolled back? I mean, is, is Russia going to be a pariah and even an energy pariah, perhaps, Lee, for, for like a, a year or a decade or, or, or a lifetime? It seems like, the, the, like a line has been crossed and I wonder how long it might take, look, taking the long view, to bring Russia back into the, the global community again. Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think the, the two things that pop up in my mind were, you know, not not directly similar, but so far as on one extreme end, sort of, you know, JCPOA Iran part one, you had you had the same question of great, you know, Iran's off the sanctions list, foreign influx of money is going to flow like a river. And it didn't um, because everyone took a wait and see approach because you had decades of US, EU, UK sanctions, you know, from all over the world. And it's very quick and easy to add them back on. It is a very slow process to take them off and then instill that confidence that you know, the the notices and, and the comfort in the international system are there to reinvest capital. Russia's been on a downward trend for over a decade um, because you already had a lot of sanctioned individuals, you had a lot of sanctioned companies, um, and a lot of that system's intertwined in Russia. Um, so it made it, it made it difficult for a lot of FDI to go into Russia. Um, you've seen, I mean, everything from, you know, Russian companies being delisted in London to just general M&A and capital inflows. Um, it just, it just wasn't happening. The ruble was already deteriorating. You had a slowing economy. Um, I think the issue, or not necessarily the issue, but the challenge now is even if you get a peaceful settlement tomorrow, you're not going to get these sanctions that roll off immediately. There's going to be, there's going to be some sort of political settlement and agreement on what happens on that front. But we've already seen about a 10-year hiatus of foreign capital going into Russia. This is going to exacerbate it, and you're taking almost a generation of economic activity and growth out of that country. So far as Western capital and even some pockets of, of kind of Asian capital are concerned in that country, and that's that's gonna take a long time to go back just because of the risk associated with it. Um, you know, Companies voluntarily choosing to leave their operations 
We know as long, if Putin or that political establishment's there, even if you want to come back, there's going to be a pound of flesh to pay. I think most companies don't have the don't have the will or interest, and it's not financially lucrative enough for them to do so. So I think we're really talking multi decades to really build back that confidence if it ever gets there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Of course, I, I overlooked the self sanctioning, which preceded the um, most of the waves of sanctions that we've seen, and um, I think it was pretty surprising, wasn't it? Like the the commitment that we saw from international oil companies and also the oil services companies um, leaving leaving Russia or almost at the drop of a hat. It was it was um, it was amazing, really. Um, but on that point, with like Western companies divesting, let's talk about China because there's been a lot of discussion about what China might do. Do you think? China will help Russia evade sanctions on its energy exports and you know buy up um, both the, the product, the volume, but also the stakes in these massive Russian energy projects like the Sakhalin liquefied natural gas complex um, uh, uh, being sold off by Western companies. And and if so, how would that affect U.S.-China relations? Do you think? It's a good question. It's why the U.S. was out there this past week. Um, to be honest, I think there's there's a question mark there. Um, you know, Russia's, Russia's policy of, of sort of, you know, being, being an innocent bystander, I think is, is kind of having the, what is it kind of the chickens coming in home to roost? Um, they need to make up their mind on a lot of these policy points. Um, we've seen, we've seen some Chinese banks effectively self-restrict themselves from certain Russian projects. Again, going back to you know, the impact of, of SWIFT and some of the financial sanctions that, that were put on Russian banks. Um, some of the Chinese banks have very wide international syndicates, have capital sources from all over the place. Um, unless there's state policy forcing, you know, forcing a movement or, or investment in a certain area, it's difficult for some of those private or commercial banks to do anything. We, and we've seen them stop. Um, we've seen them stop financing commodity products flows. We've seen them stop activity in other related Russian projects. So I think there there is going to be a part of the rush or sorry of the Chinese economy that even if they wanted to are going to be unable or disinterested from continuing to finance you know call it the Russian energy space. Um, but I think more practically, if if Russia wants to align itself more closely with China, I think we've seen we've seen that story play out of what a great relationship on the front end means on the back end with all the Central Asian gas. Um, Russia is a notoriously difficult negotiator and counterpart. And because they, the more power they get, the harder they negotiate. Um, if Russia really thinks that's, that's a great place to align itself with, I think it's going to be up for a rude awakening because China's, you know, is, is just orders of magnitude bigger than Russia from population, from GDP, from all of those major indicators. It is a bigger and stronger entity. And I think Russia's hope of, you know, pers- you know, kind of hyping its military prowess and expertise to you know to China or elsewhere, being that military stalwart. I think its reputation's hurt pretty significantly on on this kind of. You know, it has failed um, from a military perspective in in Ukraine thus far. Um, so I think some of that is is a bit risky, but but ultimately, right now, Russia seems to be playing its hand a bit stronger than I think the U.S. or NATO hopes or hoped that it would, um, staying neutral versus being being more supportive. Um, there's not a lot of roots to, I mean, you gotta remember, you know, the, the main Chinese industrial areas are farther away from 
um, from the Russian sources of gas than most of the most of Europe is, even from the UK. It is a massive land area to cover, and the big pipeline that they were hyping, I think it was the Peaks Pipeline or whatever uh, fascinating headline name they gave the project, that's still years and years away from completion. So, you know, you're only limited into how many projects you can source supply and put that into China today, rather than leveraging all of the existing pipes and infrastructure, which are primarily Western leaning, or at least our infrastructure that delivers product West into Europe. Um, but I think the long-term game, yes, you've had BP, Exxon, Shell, and a slew of others all leave all leave some of the large development stage projects in Russia that are going to be that next big wave for oil and gas production and development of the country. How they ultimately exit their stakes is, you know, is, an, uh, is an unknown. They're either going to just divest them and withdraw, um, in which case the other partners in the contract under those legal terms can see how they either preempt, pick up their pro rata stake, um, or do you, or do you sell them? Um, but, you know, there's not, there's only kind of one or two choices on what you do if you're, you're an Exxon, a Shell or a BP, but ultimately it's, God, it's a didn't think I was gonna be talking about Iran two times in the same, uh, in the same podcast about Russia, but it's the same bit. These, these next wave of projects, we're talking about massively complex LNG terminals in Eastern Siberia. We're talking about Arctic offshore oil and drilling. We're talking about unconventional resources, um, you know, in Siberia, places that are just from a just from a terrain perspective are difficult where your windows of operating and drilling wells and building things is limited to months of a year just because of how extreme the weather is let alone just the sheer complexity of those projects there's only there's only a few companies in the world that have the expertise to be able to actually operate them deliver them um, go forward and that's part of the reason why why the Western majors were in those projects because they were big enough, they were complex enough, where they were really the only companies that could do it. When they when they leave, you can end up in a situation where either companies companies are doing the work that aren't qualified. You can have massive environmental liabilities and and problems that occur, where it's either simple naivety um, to operate those projects, or simply you don't have the companies that are you know that'll be able to actually actually operate them. Um, and you'll end up with, you know, sort of what you ended up in, with in Brazil a few years ago before the regulations got unwound of an NOC trying to operate a very complicated and expensive project where historically they're very good at running over budget and, and kind of delayed on timeline. Western oil companies do not like being non-operated partners behind NOCs. So you're going to have a bit of a kind of quagmire on what what happens with all those next wave of growth projects in Russia to deliver, you know, the future oil and gas that the world needs that right now, you know, Russia is saying that's going east and that's going to China, that's going elsewhere. Um, but what happens if those projects don't manifest in the schedule or in the kind of size and quantity that that they want? I think it, it puts a big question um, you know, from the Russian perspective of what happens with those projects, how do they maintain their position as kind of 10% of the global energy market with the oil and gas that they produce on a daily basis as that starts to decline without knowing that next wave of at least maintaining that role and that, you know, key swing producer state is there that, you know, that, that starts to hurt over the, over the near term. 
yeah that's 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 a massive interesting picture you painted because um uh, and and it kind of leads into the, my my next question which I'll get to in a moment about how the opportunity for north america to to kind of rise to the challenge and potentially fill in the gap of of lost barrels but um uh, just a reminder this is a, a live call uh, a live broadcast and uh, you feel free to to raise your hand and um and ask a question to samuel and in fact we do have a caller on the line uh, i'm just going to answer this one gez uh, Gez, I'm just going to bring you in now. You have to Hello. yourself. Hello. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Um, I, I joined a bit late, so sorry if you've covered this already. But uh, the topic is, uh, I read a bit about uh, the discovery of uh, uh, shale reserves uh, across Ukraine, uh, specifically around uh, the Donbass region and, and also uh, off the coast of the Crimea Peninsula. Um, can you talk about that a bit, and if 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 you know about it, or if it's even true, um, and if you do know sort of the timeline of when those have been discovered, and maybe plans to develop them, and what what it would have meant for um, the 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 market? Yeah. No, happy happy to take first crack at that one. Um, I guess going in going in reverse order on the shale side of things really really early stage um ukraine's been pretty significantly under investing in its oil and gas system for a long time um you know the new government they reformed the two the two kind of ukrainian oil and gas companies and they actually were starting to go through the process of divesting some of their mature oil and gas assets bringing companies on low risk existing producing businesses give them an upside cut of the pie for, for adding new production, um, you know, into the, into the system. Um, but the terms were still a bit tight. Um, and you saw a pretty muted response. You saw a lot of Chinese companies, you saw a few private companies as early movers. Um, but so far as the broader, you know, the broader, you know, picture of things, the, the, you know, the conventional resource side, you've broadly found what, you know, what is going to be found. There's lots of little singles and doubles that you're going to have. And from the unconventional side, I think that windows really come and gone. Um, you know, there was a big wave early 2000 or kind of 2010 um, timeframe where you saw a lot of the U S majors and independents build up massive, massive positions everywhere from, from France, Germany, Poland, Ukraine, looking for looking for unconventional resource um there were a lot of wells drilled i think as you know this the simple answer to that is the resource prospectivity isn't isn't there um you're not having the same quality of rocks that that you have in in other basins that work for that work for shale um it's not saying it's never going to happen but for an industry that's pretty nascent in that area for a well that would cost you five, six, seven million dollars to drill in the U.S. or you know, or other more prolific, unconventional plays, you're looking at a thirty, thirty-five million dollar investment on a single well. So on something that could be economic, if you were able to drill it for five to ten million dollars, doesn't necessarily work at, at thirty, thirty-five. Um, and so far as I'm aware, I don't think there's actually many um, unconventional permits in in Ukraine that are issued right now. So if that's something Russia's looking at, I think that's a pretty, it's a pretty, there's other low hanging fruit, I think would be a bit more, a bit more interesting on, on the kind of resources side. Um, similar to Crimea, you had, 
like Turkey's made some new discoveries on the Turkish side of the Black Sea. There have been some in Bulgaria. Romania, you've had the same, I'd call, I'd call them medium size, you know, single digit TCF um, gas discoveries, but you know, they've taken a decade to commercialize. Exxon's looking to divest and get out of the country. Um, and then on the, uh, on the Ukraine side, you had one private U.S. company, this is going way back, um, who had a prospecting license but drilled dry wells. Luke Oil, I believe, did make a discovery um, offshore. So is, is there prospectivity? Absolutely. Um, but it's expensive. It's still, I'd say that that side of the Black Sea is still, is still in its infancy. Could that be, you know, from a Russian perspective, could that be something of interest? I think absolutely. Um, but is that something I think would drive kind of political or military decisions? I don't, I don't think so. I think some of the mineral, if you were going to be playing that game, I think the mineral and the agricultural resources would probably rank, would rank higher than, you know, than the oil and gas resources in Ukraine. Interesting. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, I, I read an analysis that was sort of saying that, that that's a, important to understand, uh, to explain the, the, the invasion. But, but yeah, your analysis is appreciated. All right. That, thanks. I, I might just add, actually, thanks for your call, Gez. Um, and uh, I, I wrote a little bit about the Ukrainian um, gas resource recently. Um, so Ukraine has 38.5 trillion cubic feet of proven conventional gas reserves and massive, large, unexplored potential. Um, but production, domestic production of natural gas in Ukraine, um, just from conventional wells, has flatlined at around 19 billion cubic metres per year over the last 25 years. And this barely covers two thirds of Ukraine's own needs. So, you know, those resources, that 38.5 TCF, that is, those are the biggest gas resources on the continent of Europe after Norway. And you think you've got like the world's biggest gas transmission system, um, one of the world's biggest operating to, 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 you know, to, to transit Russian gas into the EU. It could be configured to, to transit Ukrainian gas into the EU. And Ukraine has never managed to leverage the amount of foreign direct investment required into its um, conventional upstream space to be able to capitalize on those natural resources and capitalize on the infrastructure that's already built to, to pipe Russian gas into Europe. So you kind of look at that and think, well, if they can't get conventional resources that are really kind of quite accessible to market, then what prospect is there of, you know, geologically more complex resources um, in, in the shale space from, from coming into play? And I actually wrote this piece, the, the, these figures came from a piece I wrote for another, um, uh, another publication. It was actually about the potential for hydrogen, because there's like talk about Ukraine exporting hydrogen, become a massive hydrogen supplier to Europe and it's like if you want to pick like pie in the sky elements it's like you know Ukraine foreign direct investment and hydrogen it's like these these things are just never never going to happen but um I I digress um uh, Samuel where were we talking about like yeah so the the North American opportunity um uh you know like we've seen some uh capital discipline from North American oil and gas producers and there is an opportunity that you know, there's an energy crisis, you know, the prices are going insane. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit around like what, what would it take to uh, for North American oil and gas producers to kind of rise to the occasion and and uh, and, and really, you know, start reinvesting and, over, and, and just kind of say to their shareholders, look, you know, there's like an emergency where there's a short term need for 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 these extra volumes to get to market. And, and also on the government side, the policy side. 
um, there's been a kind of reticence of administration, of the Biden administration, um, uh, but also Trudeau in Canada. They're, 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 they're kind of really wrestling with their conscience because they were kind of all elected on a, on a green mandate, but now they find themselves kind of asking the Middle East to produce more oil and gas. And, and you kind of wonder, well, is there going to be a reconciliation somewhere where, you know, the administration and the industry find some common ground or, you know, what's it, what's it going to take to, to bring North America sort of to, to change the dynamic? I mean, you're, you're asking, you're asking the hard questions. Um, but I think the, if I was being an optimist, I think the, you know, what could be a good outcome or at least a positive outcome, not directly from a Ukraine perspective, but from this, this conflict in general, it's hopefully it brings some common sense in the energy transition statement of, yeah, I mentioned it earlier, Germany's plan of nuclear bad, we're going to shut off all our nuclear reactors and then having, you know, part of my French, the oh shit moment, realizing that they don't have enough energy production to meet their country's daily demand. So what do they do? They go buy some coal and they turn on their coal peaking plants. Like that, that's your green government's plan of getting rid of nuclear just to do something dirtier and burn coal for electricity. Um, you know, so I, I hope that brings more sensible discussions of, you know, you ask anyone in the oil industry right now and their expectations, well, what did you think was going to happen? And right now, the, you know, the average, you know, kind of renewables only response is, well, that's what you get when you're, you know, so super dependent on oil and gas. But it would, it would be refreshing for some of the politicians to realize this is an energy transition. This is a 30 to 50 year transition that we're talking about. Let's get off. Let's get off the high emissions products, start to transition to no or low carbon emissions products where switch, switch off coal, switch things over to gas, switch things over to cleaner gas, make the current gas cleaner, foster and support geothermal and other renewable and kind of zero or super low emissions um, projects to really take off. Because, I mean, we're, you know, we're in a market where, I mean, in some countries, it's 90 percent fossil fuel for energy and heat. In others, it's you know 70 percent. But, you know, you're not you're not getting rid of that anytime soon. I think from the U.S. perspective, you see it well of, you know, on on one end, there's not a lot that Biden can do to increase or decrease oil production. And it's and even gas production. And it's always a political cheap shot where Biden says, well, oil production and gas production has grown more under me and more under Obama than it did in Trump. Yeah, that's true. But also commodity prices have never been higher. So, of course, people are going to drill and produce more now than they were when it was 50. Um, it's not, you know, it's, it's pretty it's pretty basic math. Um, but at the same time, it kind of comes back to the whole bit of you know, why, why is the U.S. now suddenly cozying back up to Venezuela, where, great, you've got 200 some odd billion barrels of reserves in the ground. How quickly can we, how quickly can we boost production in Venezuela if, you know, you know, after God knows how long, you know, 20 plus 20 years, um, pretty much slim to no foreign investment coming into that country since they nationalized Exxon and Chevron's resources. Um, and most other private companies, you know, left and most of the majors who were there left. Um, but that's kind of what it's driving you to. It's going it's going to Saudi Arabia to make a deal with the devil. It's going into Qatar to negotiate new global LNG deals. Um, and that's probably part of what you're going to probably part of what you're going to have to do. Um, get more product from places that either are all national oil company territory, 
where, yeah, government can really impact how much you produce or don't produce. Um, and in the U.S., I think it's clear you have you've got to you've got to produce more. You've got to produce more cleanly. And there are some things Biden should and could be doing. You have a lot of LNG export terminals that want to either begin construction and are waiting their permitting. You had other oil pipeline projects, which, you know, I think the poorly named Keystone XL pipeline, which was just a tiny little interconnect. It was never a big pipeline, just connecting things that already existed. Um, but you have a lot of things that could bring bring product from the U.S. and Canada to the global market, um, from at least places that are well regulated. There's things you can do from emissions perspectives to to drive new investment, get you know get cleaner products into the market to start displacing either Russian products or either generally dirty products. Um, but that's you know that that does take some political will and courage to actually take a sensible middle ground where both sides can be right and wrong at the same time. Um, and finding finding things that work to make the old energy, the hydrocarbons based industry cleaner. It's a, you know, it is a finite resource every day, unless you find more, you have less today than you did yesterday. That's not gonna continue in perpetuity. It's impossible. Um, renewables can continue in perpetuity because there is no underlying resource base. As long as the sun shines, the wind blows, and you know it remains hot near the earth, Earth's core, you're going to have you're going to have renewable resources. Hence the name. Um, but you just need to get some more practical, long-term strategy and planning in place that actually can make make some of these decisions a bit easier. Where you know you feel you know you do feel bad for for some of the countries in Central and Eastern Europe. How can you possibly expect them to do to do X when the repercussion is your you know your heat turns off and you can't turn your lights on? Um, that's really I mean those are fundamental you know, sorry fundamental political decisions that no one wants to have to make unless they have to. So you know I think it kind of circles back to whether it's the U.S. or others. Hopefully you start getting some sensible climate policy in place that doesn't demonize or victimize one end of the spectrum, embraces it, tries to make the old cleaner and better, and tries to enable growth in the former. Because frankly, if you get both sides working together, you know, look at the biggest oil companies in the world. They're all doing both. Um, Chevron's been one of the biggest geothermal producers globally. Um, and they've got dedicated business units for it. Slumberger, the biggest oil and gas services company, what are its two new biggest divisions outside you know, that it's expanded to? Into lithium and geothermal. So you're going into the battery space and you're going into geothermal because you know how to drill wells, you know how to produce product. They're all going to move in that general direction. You just have to support and enable it. So you know, so hopefully you've got some some sensible political rhetoric that that comes out of this and not a doubling down in, in one extreme camp versus the other. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree wholeheartedly about that. And, and that's, that, that kind of need for uh, a, a kind of more mature debate around the kind of the broader energy transition. That's actually one of the, the reasons I started this newsletter and podcast was to, to kind of create a space that's nonpartisan where, where these conversations can take place. And, uh, it, and it's funny because, you know, the, the way that, that the geopolitical panorama has changed so dramatically in like, the last two years since I started this thing, uh, and and it's and it's all pushed us towards this place where we really need this, like we need this kind of um, 
like all encompassing approach towards energy. But and I, I said in my previous podcast, actually with another guest, I actually described it as a kind of um, potentially like a move away from kind of you know one source versus another, so renewable versus fossil, to almost you know it's like a, a different orientation where you have almost Western democratic energy against you know non-Western almost autocratic energy, and then. Uh, you know, there, there being this sense that we you know we need kind of all all energy sources that are produced from you know, more palatable regimes to be promoted, or governments to be promoted above those that are coming from um, from from countries like Russia, which are kind of really showing their their true colours now. Um, uh, and uh, I guess just just on that point. Um, do you do you see this Simon? Do you see this this orientation reorientation happening in in a positive way? Do you think that you know if we take a step back and consider well all, all the moving parts? Are we likely to see? Do you think a move towards a, an accelerated energy transition because like Europe's saying it wants to kind of even get off natural gas in periods like not just rushing gas but like natural gas period much more quickly? Um, or is this this kind of heat of the moment stuff where we're seeing politicians with a kind of rush of blood to the head coming out with slightly waved statements that will sort of be pedal dialed back and then we you know they'll kind of i don't know like see where the, where the dust has settled later just yeah basically any transition quicker or slower i think it, i'm not i'm not optimistic in that regard um I do think it is going to be slower. I think you've got a lot of cheap political points to win of, you know, Russia and gas being the boogeyman. Um, I think that's going to be, it's going to be problematic. Um, where I think, you know, the, the easy discussion now, if it's not coming from your backyard, you don't necessarily care where it is. U.S. U.S. is case in point. In Massachusetts and New York, if you burn heating oil to heat your home, you can't get an interconnect to switch to gas. Won't allow it. So the, you know, the state's policies are, we would rather have you burn oil than switch, switch your conversion to, to natural gas. You know, same thing with pipelines to move product over. We'd rather import it through an LNG regas terminal in New York or Boston than we would to allow you know, unconventional gas from the Appalachians to move by pipe. Um, it's it's maddening because the carbon footprint associated with that is higher. You're producing it farther away. You're having to compress it, put it on a ship, sail that ship around the world, regas it, and then deliver it. God knows where that gas actually came from. Um, so you know, my my worry is you kind of skip a step almost. Um, and same thing as you fly on some of the hydrogen discussions. There's some places where that makes a lot of sense. I think the challenge with with a lot of these is that requires a lot of new infrastructure. That requires a lot of investment. Um, that's going to have to come from public markets and private markets. If we, you know, we're in a high inflation economy, if you know, there's a lot of things that'll ebb and flow over the next thirty years that are either going to expedite or slow or slow that down. Um, I think private market investing into renewables is undeniably growing. And will continue to grow, and that's a good thing. Um, but I don't, I don't yet see see any political will um, that really shows a long term commitment to you know to other domestic energy resources, particularly gas. Um, I mean, in the UK, you had you had the energy minister saying 
you know, all future licensing for oil and gas is under review and any developments under review to now completely going back on that. Um, saying, you know, it's a clean domestic source. It's the UK champion um, and starting to green light projects left, right and center. You can't, private companies cannot make investment decisions with that kind of uncertainty overhanging things. Um, you need you need comfort and stability in your fiscal regimes and your governance regimes to make investments like that. Um, so you really, you need clear policy. You need people to come out and support it because, you know, changing that, you know, takes, takes years. It can take a minute to undo it, but it takes a long time to rebuild confidence. Um, that's I think part of, part of the challenge the UK has right now. Um, it's, you know, similarly in the U S um, you know, same, you know, what are, what are private companies do that makes sense? Leverage the existing infrastructure that you have both for making, making fuels cleaner, adding biofuels into your blending, not, not doing the corn and ethanol game that just made farmers go bankrupt um, and had no noticeable impact on the environment or kind of actually made your fuel uh, lower quality. Um, you know, but actually looking at refineries that can actually be retrofitted, that are going to be closed, leveraging existing pipelines and infrastructure where you're not having to, you know, shovel up new ground, lay new pipelines, leverage the infrastructure you have, make what you have cleaner. I think there's a lot of low hanging fruit for that, but I don't see any big political political will to do that yet. Um, you know, we'll we'll see what we'll see what the future holds. I'm not overly confident. I think it's still too easy for people to just say no to anything hydrocarbon rather than to embrace the realities. Um, I think that starts to change if we end up in a in a higher commodity price environment for a longer period of time. Um, you know, it's great. France can put two billion euros aside to subsidize petrol. Great. Like New Zealand can do the same thing. Great. The UK is bailing out customers who can't afford electricity and heat because prices are unbelievably high. It's not sustainable. Um, so I think the only way we really start to see that shift, maybe that gets exacerbated by Russia and Ukraine. Um, but I, I do think, unfortunately, the only way for people to respond is when their constituents start voting the other way um, or really start kind of pushing and complaining about it. The UK is there. Um Power prices are, are unbelievably high. You're already subsidizing and that's not sustainable. Um, so maybe maybe it's sooner than later, um, but I don't think we're there today. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm inclined to agree. Although there is the question of demand destruction, I suppose, with these insanely high prices, then as people are more exposed to them, then I guess you do have that, that element of people dialing back and almost, you know, going into kind of self-imposed lockdown, you know, not traveling as much, not turning on the heating as much, um, not buying as much stuff. Um, that's, I guess that's probably a topic for, for another podcast. Um, Samuel, it's been a real pleasure and uh, you've, uh, you've, you've tackled some really big questions. So thank you for taking them all on. It's, um, it's, been, it's been great. No, thanks for having me, Seb. It was a pleasure. Cool. And uh, just a reminder, um, yeah, head on over to www.energyflux.news to uh, sign up for the Energy Flux newsletter. Thanks, everyone, for listening and uh, join me again next week.